My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lagger Board. Joining me there is Mr. Thomas Hayes. Tom, interested to the audience and me uh, more formally. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? All right. Well, thank you for having me on, Michael. This is my first uh, Twitter spaces, so I'm pretty excited about that, or X spaces as it is. So I'm chairman and managing member of Great Hill Capital, which is a long, short equity strategy for accredited investors and qualified institutions. We run it in separately managed accounts. Prior to that, I was with a firm called Cornwall Capital. You may remember them from the big short. I worked for the gentleman that was played by Brad Pitt. He's less handsome in person, but much smarter. And and then prior to that, I was at a value shop called Bedford Oak Advisors and kind of grew up in the value mafia there with the seed investors at that fund were Michael Bloomberg, Sam Zell. Gabelli was a, a big investor, Phil Frost, the chairman of Teva. So, you know, I kind of kind of grew up around that mindset. And the principal was very good longtime friends with Buffett. So we'd go out to the annual meeting in Omaha every year, sometimes on Gabelli's jet, sometimes on a rented jet, but but we made it out there and, and it was just a life-changing experience. So I grew up in the kind of Buffett mindset, Buffett Munger mindset, and I've since adapted with my own style over the years. And some of the things I like to do, which is uh, more skewed towards turnaround, but trying to stick with high quality at the same time, which may sound like an oxymoron, but uh, there, there are ways to do it. And that's basically my story. Has it been challenging to manage a long, short strategy this year, given you know all these, what I would argue are disconnects in terms of you know, Magnificent Seven versus everything else? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I'm glad that you put a highlight point on that. We We have the optionality to go anywhere, but we're not always long short. So we'll take short bets when there's immense asymmetry to the downside for a particular instrument, sector, company, group, and we'll express that usually through long premium. So it's not in the traditional sense where we're, you know, half our book is long equity, half our book is short, you know, buying cheap and selling the most expensive stuff. We We more kind of express our views through buying high quality businesses and growing cash flows with a large margin of safety. And when the market gets to periods that are frothy, having the long short enables us to hedge out if we want, take asymmetric short bets if we want. But predominantly, we're buying high quality deep value and we're doing it in a concentrated way. Usually we'll own, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 companies and then, you know, which comprises maybe 85, 90% of the portfolio. And then we'll have uh, long dated derivative overlays for some excess performance. And we take very little to no leverage on top of that. All right. So on that high quality, deep value side of things, does that imply that you're focused more on a particular cap part of the marketplace, more large cap, mid cap, small cap? Because I'm going to make the assumption that, you know, maybe there's more deep value names that are smaller cap, given just the lack of participation, you know, this year on a relative basis. Yeah, I think that's right. No, we are go anywhere. You'll find us in everyday names. But I do agree prospectively that the relative value is going to be in the small and mid caps. You know, you look at the large cap indices, which have had a nice run in 2023, third year presidential cycle, but trading over 20 times forward right now. Maybe the E is a little low. Maybe we'll get some expansion in the E. But no matter how you slice it, the the, e, the the ratio is a little bit rich. 
However, when you go down to small and mid caps, you got 13, 14 times forward. And, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. And we, to your point and astute observation, are trafficking in that space. Actually, I'd use the word asymmetry. I think asymmetry often tends to be more along the sides of loss <laughs> asymmetry is given the way that distribution entails work when it comes to equities. Where is the, what are some of the, the more asymmetric bets that you're starting to pay attention to entering the new year? Meaning, do you think that there's going to be still a lot of upside asymmetry when it comes to tech names? Are there going to be some new leaders? Talk through your view for next year. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're moving into a new regime, which is dollar has been trending lower. Bonds have been trending higher. And usually that coincides with an environment that's favorable to both, you know, small caps, as you astutely pointed out, but also emerging markets and ex-US. And if you look across the valuation metrics, ex-US, they are attractive. Now, the other side of the argument is is people will say, well, ex-US emerging markets, Europe, et cetera, they've been cheap for a long time. They've underperformed for 15 years. Why is it going to change now? And that's, you know, that's a reasonable argument. I do think that there are catalysts in place. We've been in a very unpopular space uh, for the last year and a half, which has been pure dead money for one of our positions, which is China. Everyone's hated that. They've continued to hate that. I think with now the Fed stepping out of the way, uh, you're going to see an environment that's more favorable, certainly to emerging markets, which have already started to take off. But I do think the catch-up trade will occur in China. Uh, you basically had the patient had a heart attack. They've been locked down against their will for three years. It's going to take them a little more than 11 months to, to come off the operating table and start running marathons again. But we are seeing some signs of that in recent weeks. And I think that will be a, a key theme in 2024. And that's contingent upon the dollar's continued weakness and yields staying compressed and if not moving even lower or bonds moving higher. So I think those are some spots that that there's real asymmetry because there's no positioning for it. I mean, we saw coming into year end, if you look at the monthly Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, managers had the lowest risk in their portfolios since the 2009 great financial crisis lows. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. They had the, they had the least risk in their portfolio since the pandemic lows when we didn't know when or if we would ever have a vaccine. And that's really where the mindset was on a measly 10% pullback in October of this year. So while we've moved a tremendous way in a very short period of time, Michael, you know, it's very, and everyone now is positioning for the five or 10% pullback in Q1. It's kind of uniform mindset right now. And we may in fact get that because we did have a similar uniform mindset in July before we got the, the the pullback in August and September. But it's very short, it's very hard to short all-time highs, number one. And number two, we've gone through a two-year consolidation. We've effectively had 0% gains in the S&P 500 since 2021. So this just starting to break out kind of reminds me of the last three times that's happened when you had a two-year consolidation from you know, two, that late 2018 to 2020, and you finally broke out in summer of 2020, 2015 to 2017, which is the last time you had a debacle in China with crazy stuff happening and everyone hating China, and then you broke out for another two years. And then similarly, 
With the European debt crisis, 2010 to 2012, you consolidated sideways after the big move off the 2009 lows, and then you rallied for another couple of years. So I think this is another garden variety, uh, two-year consolidation. And while 2024 is not going to look as good as 2023 from an index chasing standpoint, I do think there are going to be more opportunities under the surface in 2024 to make a lot more than the indices, which will probably do high single digits to low double digits, if, if history is any indicator, than the indices themselves, which implies that the Magnificent Seven will do okay, but less well. And the other 493 stocks that have just started moving in the last few months, for the most part, will con- you know, is where you'll find excess return. Yeah, there's a lot of in, in what you said, which I agree with and which I've lived as a portfolio manager, the, the emerging market side and the international side in general, to your point, last 15 years hasn't done anything. I've called it volatile cash, yeah. right? Just a whole bunch of sideways, not going yeah. anywhere. And it's been, it's been maddening, right? So you talk about whipsaw risk. It's been horrible the last you know, decade plus. Now, to your point, anything that's international really does need a secular downtrend in the dollar, right? I mean, a large part of that weakness and home bias, you know, which has benefited investors has been because the dollar has been in the secular bull, yeah. right, really since 2012. I, I guess the question is, you know, is there really a possibility that the dollar can enter that that long-awaited secular bear? I mean, people have been calling for that for a long time. And when you look at other countries, you know, their setups seem to be worse from a monetary policy perspective than here in the States. Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be relative Fed policy, relative central bank policy. So, It looks like we're going to be the first to ease generally. I know there are a lot of cuts going on around the world, but relative to the major currencies, when you think about the yen, when you think about the euro, maybe even the loonie, not that anyone cares. But I think that's really going to be the name of the game is who's easing first. And then on that basis, I think there are a lot of similarities. If you've probably picked a theme, I'm really honed in on uh, emerging markets and small caps. And you know, probably just as well as I do that the last environment that set up for excess returns for both of those categories was 2003 to 2007, after tech came off the boil a bit. I'm not calling for any type of massive tech correction. I think we actually had that in 2022. But I do think there are a lot of similarities in terms of dollar weakness coming off of excess strength in terms of demographics in emerging markets, in terms of small caps relative underperformance, values relative underperformance that we did see in that 2001 to 2003 period before you had a 485% rally in emerging markets in China. You had one of the best excess return periods for small caps in history. And and I think conditions are, are aligning for the possibility of a rhyme, not maybe not a recap, but, but a rhyme for sure. And I'm not of the view that we necessarily need a secular bear in the dollar. I think more than anything else, we, needed, we just needed it to stop going up for one. And that kind of put a floor in. And now if you get a, a sideways to a trend lower then moving forward, we're going to just be focused on earnings, the recovery. We're going to keep our eye on commodities. Which also, by the way, kind of puts an interesting twist on this disinflation story. You know, the spread between the Fed's dots of three cuts in 2024 and the market's estimates of six cuts in 2024. 
I do think that you may see as a result of the emerging markets recovery, and, and I keep saying emerging markets, but I'm really pointing to China because it's over 30% of the weight, that commodities might find some renewed buoyancy after the first quarter of this year, which will, I wouldn't say surprise, but prove the Fed more correct than the market in the sense that I would take the under on six and maybe the over on three. So we get to kind of a four cut back half loaded environment due to the fact that commodities are more resilient than most people think, largely driven by a demand from China that has virtually been non-existent or subdued for the last number of years. And we've almost kind of written them off when that's probably not a wise thing to do when the bulk of their younger population is on average about 34 years old. And, uh, and if you look back over the last 100 years, it's very hard to find any country or environment where the bulk of the population was, you know, 33 to 36. And from that age through age 40, that they didn't have a robust economy. And in most cases, robust equity market as a result of that. And then abruptly halted as they approached and exceeded age 40 in bulk in mass. We saw that certainly in Japan in 1989, we saw kind of remnants of that or similarities to that in 2000 and 2009. And I think right now, our millennials, you know, 33, 34, people talk about roaring 20s because of this or that. I think it's simply because of housing and family formation. I do think we are halfway through, you know, an 18 year secular bull probably goes to the end of this decade and any 10, 20, 30% dips are to be bought. And then we'll reevaluate when those folks get, get to age 40 and stop spending and starting families and that type of stuff when we'll be in a more subdued environment like we were from 2000 to 2013. I do think that's one of the stories which is underreported in the fight against inflation. It's more than just you know, Fed policy and the lags. It's that China was not a, a big driver of commodity prices because of their own deflationary pressures. So the cost push inflation side has been, I think, far weaker than most thought at the start of the year. And that really helped put that deflation to your point. If China were to somehow reaccelerate, and I say somehow purposely because there's a lot of challenges there yeah. too. Yeah, then you're right. That does complicate the Fed inflation fight. And maybe that brings into light a discussion around another wave of inflation. You know, you see all these charts that overlay the trajectory of inflation the last couple of years to in the early 70s and then how it picked up again. What's the possibility that China doesn't reaccelerate? Because the reality is their debt load is enormous. Yep. It seems like they're willing to let the real estate side implode. By the way, I agree with you. I think China is an interesting place to consider here just because of underinvestment broadly and it's a price for everything. But th there are real headwinds for the argument that China suddenly is going to you know, pull growth uh, high. Yeah, no, I, look, I agree. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, when I talk to folks, they say, well, China's in a housing crisis. And I say, look, you know, I've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, I can't remember when China wasn't in a housing crisis. And I can't remember when it wasn't at the acute point when it was all going to blow up. And, you know, the we were going to realize the emperor had no clothes in China. So maybe this time is different. And maybe this will be the one. But uh, betting against that has been a good bet, uh, particularly in a weakening dollar in environment. And, you know, actually, if I, if I take a secular view, I'm not bullish on China for the long term. Unlike most people think it's going to overtake the world, et cetera. 
I think this is the last power. I, I think they're going to have one last parabolic run over the next three to five years, driven by that bulk of population, 33, 34 through age, you know, 40. And then it's game over for China and it'll be another Japan. It's a xenophobic society. They don't have much immigration and they don't have the birth rate and the policy will leave something to be desired. That's not to say that couldn't be changed, but, or will be changed potentially. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're late cycle, and I think that you get the biggest gains in the shortest amount of time in late cycle, and I want to participate. But that said, I, you know, China is China. So, you know, we're expressing it through a, a meaningful position in Alibaba because it's the highest quality asset and uh, a relatively low probability of fraud. I mean, people show me great companies in China all the time on paper, and I just won't participate because I need that extra margin of safety that it's proven, it's been around, the probability of fraud is very low. And you can't say that across the spectrum in China. So, you know, you, you have to be careful, but there are ways to participate that I think you can catch this part of the cycle that seems to be uh, rhyming with the early 2000s from a small cap, from a dollar, from a bond, from uh, emerging markets, from a China, from a population demographic that can lead to very good things. And I think all that can be summarized into it's a it's Broadly speaking, rotation out of growth into more a value style, right? I mean, the small cap indices tend to be more value based on their sector composition. International tends to be more value based on their sector composition. Growth is growth because of the sector composition, because of tech. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with that. And look, I mean, famous last words, right? I mean, we still own Alphabet from, you know, we bought last fall when no one wanted it. We still own some semis from last fall when no one wanted it. We still own Amazon. So, you know, but we own it in the context that we're expectant that they will perform, but underperform, and we still want exposure. And we do think conditions are ripe to have some excess performance from the group, groups that you just pointed to. And, and, and I think we will. And I think we're seeing the beginning of it. And, you know, when you look at uh, small cap relative to large cap, whether you look at uh, uh, value relative to growth, you know, these are extremes and whether we do that on a kind of bucket basis, you know, for, I'll, I'll give you an example. PayPal, okay? This has become a value stock. The new CEO, his name is Alex Chris. This is a relatively new position for us. It's up 23% off its recent low, but that means nothing. Everything's up in the last two two months. So Alex Chris came from Intuit and he was responsible for the small business unit at Intuit which was 50% of revenues. And over a 12-year period while he was there, the stock was a 35 bagger. And in English, that means for everyone listening, if you put a million dollars in 12 years later, you had $35 million. Which, or if you, in smaller figures, if you put 100 grand in, which a lot more people could do, you'd have $3.5 million, which is very meaningful in a 12-year period for a lot of people. So he's just come in. It's his first quarter. He kitchen synced everything. And he basically said, we're going to turn this from a value company back into a growth company. What does that mean? Well, it's trading at 12 times forward earnings. It's historically traded at 30 times forward earnings. So, so what, why has that happened? Why has the company been derated? Why did the stock go 85% from peak to trough? And the answer is they did some acquisitions, some accretive, some non-accretive, but one of which was called Braintree. Braintree is the non-branded version of their platform that does global processing for large enterprise. So they have Ticketmaster, for instance. Many people have heard of Ticketmaster. 
Uber. They have Uber's account. They basically have $500 billion of the $5 trillion global processing for large global enterprise. That's the good news. The other good news is their processing volume has been going up. And the beauty of being in the processing business is you get paid on nominal terms. <laughs> so, you know, above trend inflation is not a bad thing. And the bad news is relative to the PayPal and Venmo branded stuff that you and I are used to as a consumer, which has very high margins for PayPal, the global enterprise business has lower margins. And as that business grew, the overall margins came down because they were getting more volume, more cash flow, more everything, however, at slightly lower margins. That's the bad news. So they derated the multiple. And basically what we've seen in the last quarter is that's starting to reaccelerate. It's something that Alex Chris, the new CEO, has emphasized that he believes the value proposition now supports pricing power. They're going to see margin inflection. They've got 435 million people 435 million users. They've been firing non-profitable users in Latin America. He's committed to growth, but only profitable growth, not growth at any cost, not margin decelerating growth. And I think over the next couple of quarters, when the market sees that this value stock trading at 12 times is going to start to get re-rated to a growth stock multiple. And you'll have a, a business that's already by the way, generating $5 billion a year of free cash flow, and by the way, buying in $5 billion a year of stock, rather than trading at 12 times, start to trade up to 14 times, start to trade up to 16 times. And if he can pull together a few of these levers that he outlined in the last earnings call, I think over the next 12 to 24 months, you could see a 16, 18 times multiple with growing earnings. And that puts this in place to, yes, up 50%, but maybe a double over the next 12 to 24 months. Obviously, this is all opinion, not advice. I'm sure you always disclaim everything. We don't know your financial situation, but we have a position in it. And that's why we have a position in it. So I think some of these stocks that were either former growth that have become value have an opportunity with the right catalyst to become growth again, or those value stocks that have been left for dead start to get attention. So uh, a good example of that, if you think about the small cap index, is what? Is is a lot of banks and a lot of energy. Both have been left for dead in 2023. So why did we have the mini crisis in banks? Part of that was due to, well, the government basically jammed the American consumer with trillions and trillions of dollars of cash during COVID. They all decided to put it in the banks. The banks had to put the money to work at the exact wrong time in history when rates, when money was basically zero. They could get no yield. So they said, oh, we'll be safe about it. We'll just put it in U.S. treasuries. <laughs> well, there you go. The government forces them into U.S. treasuries, or the Fed rather. And then guess what? They have the most precipitous, most aggressive hiking policy measures in the shortest period of time in history since the early 80s. And it sends all these banks upside down. So they have all these unrealized losses. I think what you're seeing now with the bonds starting to rally which, by the way, it's so interesting. Since summer of 2018, you had never seen a period where more hedge funds were where hedge funds were more short long bonds than summer of 2018. And if you look at the chart, that was the beginning of a monster rally in treasuries. Same thing happened this summer in August. We talked a lot about it on our weekly podcast, which is called Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. 
It's top rated in the hedge fund category, which albeit is a narrow category, but we're happy to be close to the top. We'll take what we can get. And we've been hovering back and forth between one and two there. I don't know how they exactly they calculate it, but you could find it on YouTube or in your podcast. But we've had this rally in bonds and we think that will persist. And that's going to help banks, which helps small caps, which helps XUS, because you know, some a lot of the undervaluation of XUS is because of the composition in the indices. And you pointed to it before. We're tech weighted and European Union doesn't really have any tech behemoths because they overregulate everything. So they're stuck with a bunch of zombie banks. And that's why the multiples on their indices are so low, because that's the largest weight in their indices. So I think I said a lot there. I've been up since 2 a.m. I had CNBC London this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Just to reset the room for the remaining 20, 25 minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Tom Hayes here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be podcast under Lead Lag Live on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. Congrats, by the way, on having the energy level <laughs> that you have given that. Uh, again, a lot of things I agree with. I had brought up that point earlier in the year that yeah, to save the banks, you need to have Treasuries really run hard. I initially thought that would happen from credit events to force the flight to safety trade, which obviously we haven't seen. I still think that's coming, that we're still in that lagged window from the fastest rate hike cycle in history. But clearly, yeah, to your point, the healing that's been happening in treasuries has helped heal the asset uh, side of things for the banks, which goes back again to value. I want to switch the conversation to uh, sentiment because I, I have to tell you, I am... I am legitimately blown away by how fast the sentiment changed. Now, I myself was wildly bearish, you know, basically thinking, you know, we're on the verge of that credit event entering November, ended up being the bottom, right? Everything ripped higher, egg on my face on that, although treasuries ended up doing way better than equities. So it's fine. I don't mind being wrong and bearish by being long treasuries, even if stocks are rallying uh, and I'm wrong on that thesis. But, and it's funny, I, I kick myself because, I, you know, back then at the end of October on X, what was trending was Black Monday. I mean, it, yeah. it was actually a lot of people, like, it, which, which was not just, you know, <laughs> joking, I said that's partially because I was so loud about it. But the reality is, like, there was a lot of dark sentiment. I kick myself for not seeing that as a contrarian signal, even against myself, right, with hindsight. By but the way, that, it's interesting. I actually talked about that article in the Wall Street Journal we did an article on the website, hedgefundtips.com. We put out a free note every week. But we also talked about it, on, I think it was on Fox or one of the stations. And I said, you know, this is a pretty bold call by a couple of academics that have never managed money because they've only got two Mondays left in the month of October to get it right. And they were trying to be Paul Tudor Jones. The problem is they're not Paul Tudor Jones. And, you know, I, I would say I totally understand and appreciate the lagged effects argument. And that may prove out. There's no question that's a possibility. The one thing that I keep coming back to, particularly what else was trending was the largest contraction in M2 money supply since the Great Depression. Therefore, we were at the Great Great Depression. The problem with that is if you look at the long-term trend of M2 money supply, yes, huge contraction, except for the fact So it was $4 trillion above normal growth trend, above the normal long-term growth trend. So it contracted about $2 trillion. We're still $2 trillion above the long-term trend. So we're not even remotely back to trend. And I think that's what's offset a lot of what would normally be the lagged effect of a tightening cycle and a material slowdown is because 
that liquidity is still sloshing in the system and it's going to take a, some time to digest all that. And it's very hard to digest all that when they're spending like pirate, you know, spending like banshees going into the election with the Inflation Reduction Act and everything else that's happening. So, you know, it's a push pull, but I definitely understand the arguments on, on that point. But I think we are now uh, at the other extreme of that, right? I mean, everyone is just declaring, from what I've seen at least, it's a bull market. You know, we're going to keep on going higher. And all that could be true, but I'm the loudest one in saying path matters more than prediction, right? You can have a credit yeah. event and then the higher highs afterwards. I mean, that, that would not be uncommon in history. So the is it surprising to you to see just how, and this is just my own personal opinion, how one-sided we've gotten all over again. We were one-sided bearish at the end of October. I was part of that. I was wrong. and But now I'm seeing the exact opposite. And I always go back to the one commonality across major tops and major bottoms is overconfident. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, no, you know, look, I agree with you that, you know, we all know the big public folks that were out there since last October, not even just this October, that, but last October, and they've kind of said, okay, it's the Fed's fault, we're going higher. And they did these big about faces. The only thing that I would caution of just from doing this for a long time is after you come out of w- what I refer to as a heart attack, and I would say last October was kind of like a heart attack, the COVID lows were kind of like a heart attack. The great financial crisis was definitely a heart attack. That first overbought extreme where everything is overbought, whether it's the National Association of Active Investment Managers, the fear and greed, the put-call ratio, option skews showing scary things, whatever metrics, you know, percentage of stocks above whatever moving average, bullish percent of stocks, bullish percent of sectors, you know, there's hundreds of these things. They're all saying it's overbought. In a sideways market, those are damn good indicators to get short. In a market that's coming off of a heart, attra- heart attack, what's overbought tends to stay overbought. And it, this environment reminds me a lot of summer of 2020 after you'd come off the COVID lows and had a monster rally. I think it was like, I, I'm making this up, but it was like, 40 or 60% off the bottom in a few months. Same thing with summer of 2009, 40 or 60% off the bottom in a few months. And every single indicator was bearish because everyone was bullish, right? Or everything was at an extreme and it just kept going. And I think, you know, two of the things that I've been looking at is I, I really like the Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey. If you look at sentiment right now, It's come up a lot in the last two months. This is from a week ago, but it did the same thing off the COVID lows. It did the same thing off the great financial crisis lows. It did the same thing off the tech rec lows. And it's only about a third of the way up. And what I worry about is that we all get kind of a little cute 
with all of these things that help us in normal sideways marketing. I think the trick of technical analysis, and I'm not a CMT, is that there's not perfect symmetry due to the fact that the market trends up 70% of the time. So the signal that an oversold condition gives is not necessarily, you don't get the same indication on an overbought signal, particularly in a trending market. Sideways market, it can have some value, but the odds are against you 70% of the time. And look at an environment right now, and there are a lot of smart people in the market, and they're all looking at the same things that we're all looking at, and they're all noticing all the bears getting bullish. And that was a precursor in July of 2023 before we turned down in August and September. Everyone knew it was coming, and it came. So this could be the same thing in January, February. We know February tends to be seasonal weakness. But just looking at even the cash levels at 4.5% in the fund manager survey, you usually don't get topping until it's been below 4% for some time. So you, yes, you have this year-end chase, and yes, you've had a lot of money, and yes, it wouldn't surprise anyone to get some consolidation or a pullback in the first quarter. And yes, multiples at the large cap level are stretched. But when you look at equal weight, small and mid, there are a lot of stocks still with a margin of safety. Yeah, they've, they've run 20 and 30% off the lows, so maybe they'll pull back 5 or 10% just to scare out the weak sisters and the late muddy. Uh, but it, it's very hard to get too bearish with margin expansion reacceleration. So we, the, the real issue of 2023 was everyone was preparing for a recession that happened in 2022. You know, the first two quarters of 2022 was the technical recession. Two quarters of negative GDP growth wasn't confirmed by employment, but it was a technical recession. So what does that mean? It means a lot of these CEOs acted as if a recession was coming. They cut costs. They leaned up their operations. And the, the story that I think very few people are focused on for 2024 that I've been paying a lot of attention to. Yeah, everyone knows estimates are high and estimates have actually held up uh, so far 246 or whatever it is, 12% earnings growth. But what people aren't paying attention to are two things. Number one is margin expansion. So 60 to 70 basis points coming of reacceleration in 2024. And with rates coming down, two things happen. Credit markets reopen. So all the companies that had solvency risk or refinancing risk are now going to hit the window and they're going to hit it hard and they're going to hit it fast. The other thing that's going to happen is as the year goes on, people are going to refinance at lower rates, which means more free cash flow to buy in stock, which means more earnings power because their cost of capital is actually coming down. So I think these are two items that aren't fully baked into the models. That could be a positive surprise. But, you know, I, I, I think from an index level, you know, 2024 is a high single digit, low double digit. It's not a 2023. Since 1928, the average returns in a presidential year, 11.28. In a sitting president running for election, it's 13. We pulled forward some of that. So I think playing the indices is kind of a, a lame bet in 2024. I think to the point you made early on, looking for that relative value where the multiples are cheap and, and maybe with, with value, but not value for value's sake with no growth and a low return on capital, quality value that just happens to be marked down in price. Which, by the way, everything you just said is exactly why I keep saying small caps hold the key. Right, because yeah. you know, uh, 
the, the move has been in lower in rates has obviously most benefited small caps because they were most at risk on the refinancing potential crisis, which may still be coming, right? If, I'd argue that if small caps don't break nominal highs, right? And I keep going back to nominal versus real is different. We're still in the real drawdown, but that's semantics you can say. But if small caps don't break the, the prior peak, that would suggest that small cap investors are still nervous that the drop in yield is not enough relative to the zombie company dynamics, right? And that's where maybe there's some higher risk. So it does seem like the, the interaction of the drop in yield combined with the, the ongoing concern risk of small caps are directly tied to the secular argument for whether you're going to have low single digits or you know, positive, that are positive or negative, I think. Yeah. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, no, I th- and by the way, I mean, that's a huge move between where we are today and potentially testing or exceeding the previous highs in the small cap index. I mean, the amount of money to be made during that period in just a, you know, a handful of regional banks or even, you know, we, you know, we're not ready to do anything material with oil and gas, but we do like the fact that the group is out of favor and hated once again. It's just price hasn't come down to a level that's attractive. But there are some gas, pure plate gas producers that are really interested. And I think we want to start to get some commodity exposure where it's gotten cheap enough because, you know, I actually looked at one of your posts on LinkedIn today. I loved what you put out about the different sector relative performance. I think it was discretionary relative to the S&P. Financials relative to the S and P or small what was it small caps relative to yeah like, it's, it's right every Tuesday there's a an overview that's published that shows different sectors different caps on a relative basis to sort of see where the the spreads what the spreads are telling you so it, it's clear right that there is obviously an improvement on sentiment related to the domestic consumer right which is really what yeah that regional banks yeah you know, that that's really the message there yeah so 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 I think there's stuff to do and I think there's stuff to do. Regardless of whether either of our macro views play out, I think on a company by company basis, there are some, there are enough decent quality businesses that have been marked down to a level where the margin of safety is great enough that even if your worst case plays out or my best case plays out, the bottom line is they're cash generators, they're growing cash generators, and all they needed was the Fed to step out of the way to start to get a re rating and uh, start to grow into what has been their cash flow growth that they've not been rewarded for. And, you know, whether that's a a PayPal, which is not a small cap, you know, we had a couple other uh, mid caps that we liked. Generac, which is the most boring company, it got uh, smoked. I mean, it was down 85% when we were out buying this thing and talking about it. It's up 63% in the last couple of months. But it's meaningless relative to where it was and where it could go. And what were the two mistakes? Two things, no different than Intel, which is another one we were in last fall. They overstocked during COVID. So they bought at the wrong price at the wrong time because they thought they'd never be able to get parts again. And two, in the case of Generac, 
high rates hurt them because consumers finance a five or ten or twenty thousand dollar purchase. They have seventy five percent of the home standby generator market in the U.S., but that's only five point seven percent penetration domestically, which is interesting because every extra percent is a $3 billion market opportunity. And in states like Michigan, where they have a lot of power outages and a rickety grid, they have 15.7% penetration. And I think as you look at some of the trends, whether it's climate or whether it's EVs or different demands on the grids moving forward, the demand for these is going to continue to grow and continue to be important, and people are going to need durable. And by the way, their CNI business, their commercial and industrial business is growing 24% a year. So backup for cell phone towers, backup for data centers, that type of thing. So, so these are the type of businesses. So if the economy went into a complete tailspin, it really doesn't matter. When everyone's power is out on the street, except for the one guy who has the Generac, the next time there's a power outage, you're the second guy with the Generac. And that's why those states like Texas and Michigan, which have the highest penetration rates, also have the highest growth rate because you don't want to be the only schmuck on your block without power when everyone else's generators are humming. So the more people that buy them, the more people buy them, which is kind of counterintuitive, but we think they've got a long runway and certainly with that margin of safety. So those are the kind of things we're, you know, trafficking in and looking for values so that we don't have to be perfect on the macro because at the end of the day, you're taking probabilistic guesses. You know, I mean, based on all the statistical data that you can look at and discern and it may be right, maybe wrong. And there may be something that you don't know that you don't know when it comes down to macro, whether we get out a week from now, a month from now, three months from now, there's always something. But if a company is a high quality, durable company that's operated through cycles, that's cash generative, that's temporarily impaired, and you can buy it at 85% off and, and zero solvency risk, then usually you, you can weather any of the uh, headline noise. Which is, my, when in hearing that, my mind goes to the wealth you want to then go to probably from a sector perspective would more be utilities, consumer staples, healthcare just because they've done so poorly on a relative basis this year. They tend to be high dividend, high quality plays in general. And now they're not competing against the Fed, right, in terms of hiking rates going further. So is it fair to say that the real conclusion on this is that we're going to see a return to focusing more on on dividends as part of that quality equation? It's interesting. So you said utilities, staples, and what was the third one? Healthcare. And, and, and I often, I often group the three, healthcare, right? Utilities, yeah. they, they tend to be lower beta, higher dividend, more defensive sectors. Yeah, no, I agree with that. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because so the one play that we made, which was a rate play in September when we were expecting bonds to finally get bid and, and sure enough, it took four weeks more or six weeks more as it always does was Crown Castle, which is kind of, you know, they trade like a utility, all the REITs trade with rates. So we wanted a rate play that also had a margin of safety as a business. It was down 55%. And we figured if bonds got bid, this thing had huge leverage in it. And it's, a, you know, demand for data is growing, demand for cellular is growing, et cetera. It's been slightly mismanaged because they overinvested in small cell and fiber. And then, you know, a few weeks after, Pulsinger of Elliott came in with a $2 billion investment and said, hello, board, you're fired. The CEO was fired. And how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? So the CEO stepped down. 
They are now running a process to explore selling the non-productive small cell and fiber business. And that legacy 40,000 towers is a cash machine that he's going to get leaned down to get back to double digit return on invested capital. And that'll play. Now, the staples, it's where our thinking is alike. We do have a medical device maker that got sold off with the GLP mania this fall. That's kind of our play on healthcare. We also have a basket of biotech, which has been dead money for a year. It bottomed in March of 2022. It's done nothing since, and now it's taking off and actually working to break out of that range. Kind of looks a little like small caps. It had that you know, crash and then a long sideways range for a couple of years. And now it's it's knocking on the door. I think small caps just peaked above their range. So we have a play that way. As far as staples go, I haven't found enough that have come down to a level where a lot can go wrong and I still make money. They're kind of at the level where it's probably good investment here, but it's not there's not enough safety for what I don't know that I don't know to go wrong and still make money. So I, I haven't found anything that I love there yet. I'm just trying to look. You know, one was Kraft Heinz. We have a tiny little position. It got flushed, I think, in the fall. But I do like some of the discretionary names that you pointed to that, that have been left for dead. We're starting to look a lot there. And healthcare, we we only really, besides that medical device, we have a basket of biotech. And I think that's kind of it. Utilities, we didn't really find anything we liked. We looked at Dominion for a little bit and kind of took a pass. So may have missed some opportunity there, but I'm perfectly okay with errors of omission versus errors of commission, right? Very well said. Tom, as we wrap up, for those who want to track more of your thoughts, more of your work, where would you point them to? You mentioned the podcast. Maybe just mention that again as well as your website. Yeah, that'd be great. So hedgefundtips.com, that's where people can reach out to contact me. There's a contact form. And then in the weekly podcast, which is called Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes, you can just put it into YouTube and it'll come up as a video or you know anywhere you get your podcast, it'll come up as an audio. We do a section at the end called Ask Me Anything where people submit companies we want them to look at that they want, want me to take a look at. And I kind of go through some of the financials. Obviously, it's you know done in real time. So it's a few minutes. It's not a thorough comprehensive analysis, but it's enough to lead them in the right direction or save them some time. So that's that. We also post the weekly research note on Thursdays along with the podcast on Thursdays. So if you put your email in there, you'll get those every single week. And then other than that, I think it's pretty straightforward. At Twitter, I'm at Hedge Fund Tips. And same thing at TikTok, which is, believe it or not, where a lot of people find me, it's at Official Hedge Fund Tips. And I'm sure there are a bunch of fake accounts there too, but it's the word at Official Hedge Fund Tips. But Thank you so much, Michael. I've never done a space before. This was a lot of fun, and I appreciate you inviting me on to do this with you. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Tom. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice.
Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.